Welcome to the Co-op Power Hour on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Nathan Schneider, a scholar in residence of media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. I'll be joining you on the fourth Thursday of every month to learn about economic democracy and cooperative business. The Co-op Power Hour is a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle, which you can learn more about at our website, coloradocoops.info. Today we're talking about co-ops and shared ownership models in the local tech community. Today we're joined by uh, uh, founders and and, uh, workers at local tech companies that are exploring cooperative models to uh, strengthen their businesses and to create social good. Now, Boulder's tech scene has this notion of give first, you know, this slogan, but it doesn't really explore what we keep and share. It doesn't talk about how we steward. Still, most of the Colorado tech economy, like uh, the tech economies in many places, are organized around investor ownership. But are there alternatives that we can imagine? In the past, our area has given rise to uh, cooperatives like the Magnolia Road Internet Cooperative uh, up west of Boulder, which provides uh, internet service to people who might otherwise not be able to access it and the Boulder Community Network. Today, we'll hear from some newer ones, companies experimenting with models for, say, sharing first, or democracy first. These aren't the only ones. There are other uh, uh, new projects in this area that are exploring these kinds of models. Uh, uh, Projects like Catalyst Cooperative, which is doing data analysis around uh, energy and climate data, and the Boulder Code Academy, and uh, Drutopia, which is a a new platform for building websites. This, in turn, is part of an emerging global movement for a cooperative internet. And I'm glad to be co-organizing the next conference uh, for this global movement in New York uh, in November. You can learn more about about that at platform.coop slash 2017. That's uh, 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 the, the third conference on platform cooperativism. Now, first, I'm joined by uh, Corey Cohn. She's a chief operating officer and partner at Dojo4, which is uh, a local uh, tech company that has recently converted to a cooperative. Welcome to the show, Corey. Thank you. Can you tell us about what Dojo4 is and why you decided to become a cooperative? Yeah. So Dojo4 is a small tech and design agency here in Boulder, just on 17th near Pearl. And we have been in business since the end of 2009. Uh, We started actually just as a co-working space for designers and technologists, for developers. Um, in this sort of burgeoning startup scene, and then very quickly turned into an agency when people started walking through the door and saying, here's all these smarties and good designers, can you build something for me? So then quickly we went from, I think we were a co-working space for maybe three weeks, something like that, and uh, very quickly sort of coalesced into an agency. And we build technology and design technology for clients that come in and need various things. They need applications, they need websites, that kind of thing. And uh, we've sort of, we've grown over the years, I think maybe at the most, at some point we were like maybe 15 people, something like that, and we've sort of ebbed and flowed and we've had big clients, small clients, um, you know, very happily been in business pretty successfully this whole time. 
And then last year, last year we decided that we wanted to become a co-op. Um, at that point, at the point at which we decided to become a co-op, we had gone, there were four original founders. I was not actually one of them. I came in just a few months later. But by the time we decided to co-op last year, there was just two founders left, or I, at this point, consider myself a founder after this many years. And um, he and I are 50-50 owners, Ara Howard and myself. We're 50-50 owners, and we decided to become a co-op with the people that we had been mostly, most of the people that became members of the co-op are people that we've been working with since almost the beginning. I'd say at least 75% of them were right there from the very, very beginning. Um, and at this point, at the point at which we became a cooperative, we were at that point two owners and everyone else contractors, so a collective of contractors, and already in a lot of ways operating as a co-op. For instance, at the end of every calendar year, we would distribute all our profits, sort of just in a kind of uh, made-up equation of what's left over in the bank and then dividing it sort of according to how much time people had put in over the year and that kind of thing. Um, but whenever we had asked people in the past if they wanted to own the business with us, they had turned us down, and understandably, I think, for a number of reasons. One being is that I don't think the company really gained the value that it has now, that it, you know, it took a while for the, it to be something that anyone would want to own. And another reason is because what we had always offered in the past was, you know, so-and-so, come and, come and be an owner with us. And um, that comes with all sorts of liabilities and risk and, you know, not necessarily a lot of upside. And we had never considered the cooperative model until just last year. And then we did. And now we're a co-op. How did you first learn about it? And how did it um, start to make sense to you as an appropriate model? Yeah, you know, I wish I could remember how we first learned about it. I think Aira and I, my co-owner and I, um, we had batted around a few different models. And finally, in the end, the reason why we decided to co-op is not necessarily because of some kind of high-minded ideal, I'll be honest. Um, we were thinking, or maybe it is a high-minded ideal, but it didn't, it didn't display itself that way. It happened in a very mundane way, which was that we realized that we were only going to get so far with the business that we had and with he, just he and I as owners. And so we were actually up against this feeling of having things kind of bottlenecked around the two of us. Decision-making, um, sort of engagement and ownership of projects. And by ownership, I don't mean actually owning it in a, uh, a fiscal way, but owning it in, a, in an engaged way, feeling some sense of ownership over our client projects. And so we were sort of talking about things back and forth. And somehow in those conversations, we realized that what we wanted, all the characteristics we were talking about were reminding us of co-ops that we had heard about. And we thought, oh, co-op. Huh, let's let's think about that. And so then we did a little research and it turned out that it really did fulfill the things we were looking for in terms of allowing people to feel engaged, to feel ownership, but not have this kind of exchange necessarily just exchange of money for ownership, but a exchange of like goodwill and effort and 
and um, sort of life investment. I don't know another way to say it, but people who had been doing this for years already with us and had already put in all that kind of life investment, I don't know another way to say it, but some sense of like, I've really put in my time, I put in my energy, I put in my thoughts, my aspirations, my frustrations, my challenges, all that people who'd already been doing this for years, how can we actually reflect that back to them and give them a sense of actual substantial participation and ownership. Well, it's amazing. You know, whenever I'm in an airport and go by the bookstore, uh, there's invariably some book there that's, uh, you know, the latest business manual about how to give your employees a sense of ownership, right? right? For all the people in business class who are agonizing over how to make their employees work harder and faster all the time. right? Right. And and, um, it's amazing how rarely actual ownership comes into that conversation you know and there's quite a quite a literature about about this sense of ownership uh, um, uh, one term that they use is psychological ownership right um, it's kind of uh, remarkable and in, in some ways simpler and more efficient to just say okay let's do actual ownership right. in the mix there and um, and and also I think it's so important what you say about not going into it just for ideological reasons for some sort of utopian vision, right? And I think a a lot of the most successful uh, co-ops do it not because they have some kind of philosophical association, but because it helps them solve a problem, a practical problem. Uh, And it's a human problem, but nevertheless, uh, a very practical one. So, So once you learned about this model, what came next? What steps were you able to take in order to uh, actually uh, make the transition? So we, first of all, talked to our people. And luckily, we are a small company. Um, At this point, we are now six member owners, including the original um, partnership of of my partner and I, Aaron and I. And um, so sort of going around and interviewing people and seeing what kind of buy-in was there in terms of you know, was a real interest level, didn't take us that long because there's not that many of us. So I imagine that would be quite different if we had been a larger company um, and wanting to make that transition. So, you know, literally, Aaron and I just went for walks with our various contractors and kind of actually at the beginning went pretty far field in terms of um, our our workspace, our company is a little bit unusual in that it's very porous. We have we continue to still kind of be an open workspace. So if you're listening to this and you want to drop by our office anytime, we do welcome all people from all walks of life into our office. And I often walk in there and find some stranger just working on their computer in our workspace. So that being the case, we kind of we went pretty wide and we went to kind of all our friends of Dojo for people that don't necessarily um, do contract and client work for us, but just use our office might be advisors to us, friends, you know, maybe former contractors, not anymore. And we really went wide and we talked to a lot of people and there was actually turned out to be quite a bit of interest. Um, So we started with these kind of large, you know, first sort of seeing what was there, seeing what people's feedback was. We didn't have anyone just say right away, I'm totally into it. I'll completely do it. There was a little bit of, you know, uh, cautious curiosity. And but once we got a sense of that, there was some critical mass there. We gathered together. We also um, hired our illustrious lawyer, Jason Weiner, and um, to kind of help guide us through the process. He's extremely helpful and knowledgeable. 
also and, a sometime co-host of this show. Yes, and <laughs> and greatly admired individual throughout the uh, co-op landscape. And um, so then he helped us kind of host these conversations. And it really had this a little bit of a kind of like amorphous, formless quality to it. And then we just kept on having conversations, kept on having conversations. I also tried to blog about the whole process because we feel really strongly about open sourcing everything from our code to our operational um, paperwork. Like we open source all our contracts with Jason's permission once we started working with him. Um, and so we wanted to also open source this process so that companies of similar size who were interested in making a transition would at least have some like touchstone online that they could find. Oh, and then they did this and they did this. And so you can find that on the Dojo 4 blog if you're interested. Um, and then it started to actually sort of take form. So it had this kind of ephemeral quality and just conversation, conversation. And then what is this actually going to look like? Who's actually going to be members? And we even had a point at which there was two people who were interested in being members who weren't actually, either of them actually contractors. And so then we had to really think, okay, well, what is that going to mean in terms of their contribution and their patronage? Um, and in the end, it really was much simpler than we thought it was going to be. Like we had this idea like, oh, we're going to include the whole community and it's going to be all the friends and all, you know, everyone we can think of is going to be part of this gigantic co-op. And actually, in the end, it was just the people we had been working with all along. And so it's just people that we actually do contract w work with who actually, you know, can put in their patronage time that way. Some people work f with us full time. Some of us, some people that are now members are, you know, just a few hours a week or a few hours a month, but it's all people who are actually contractors. And where does that leave you as a, a co-owner before the, this process began? Uh, how did your situation, your role change? Right. So that was um, a little bit of a concern because we are also, I think we had this concern, the, the, own, the original owners had this concern and the contractors had this concern that we had built this company that was very, um, has a very uh, unique personality. We have a lot of processes in place to help us run a, a tight ship that works very well. But in terms of... Um, community process, we're quite allergic to that. So we don't like making decisions together. We, you know, have a really hard time even meeting for more than 10 minutes at a time. And so I think people have this idea, you know, it's like you have these hangovers in your mind of like that, f you know, grocery co-op that you belong to or housing co-op that you may have lived in where it was like making decisions by consensus and this sort of like painful process that can sometimes happen. And so I think people, myself and, and Aira included, were like, yeah, yeah, like, what are we, you know, we don't want to get ourselves into that. In the end, Jason helped guide us through this. Our lawyer ended up guiding us through this quite well, is that a co-op can be what you want it to be. So in the end, it helped for Aira and I to stay on as managers. And essentially, not that much has changed. He and I you know, make most of the day-to-day -day decisions, and then there's just a class of decisions that we make together as members. And those are not generally day-to-day -day decisions, and it's easy for us to make those decisions, you know, together about things like hiring and firing um, new co-op members, hiring and firing contractors and clients, that kind of thing. But everything else, we just keep doing what we're doing, and that has made the transition much easier, and 
I think everyone's kind of relieved. No one, one of the reasons people didn't want to be owners before is because it's really hard to be a small business owner and it takes years off of your life. You know, <laughs> why would someone want to do that unless they're just horribly compelled as I seem to have been? <laughs> so being a co-op owner means that you can participate in the ownership of the business, but you don't necessarily have to be a small business or large business owner in the same way that you would be if you were sort of a more conventional owner or founder. Yeah, so it, it balances the load a little bit, it sounds Absolutely. like. Absolutely, yeah. Great, and people can find out more at dojo4thenumber4.com. That's right. right. And uh, and hire you as well. Yes, absolutely. Great, sure. and and this is just one of many uh, uh, similar kinds of uh, uh, tech and web development software uh, co-ops around the country, around North America. You can see a, a list of them at uh, techworker.coop. Uh, it's not always the most updated list, but it's okay. Uh, and it just shows that this is a model that really works, uh, that that enables uh, small companies to get great talent, retain it, and and allow uh, 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 people who are doing really uh, 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 who are doing their craft, their art, to uh, have a real sense of ownership over it. So thanks for joining us, Corey, and uh, and you'll be staying with us yes. uh, the rest of the conversation. You're listening to the Co-op Power Hour, a regular feature on KGNU's It's the Economy, a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. I'm Nathan Schneider. We'll be with you on the fourth Thursday of every month. And today we're talking about uh, uh, co-ops and shared ownership models in the local tech scene. Coming up, we'll be hearing from Mike Redmer of Fleet Creature. Welcome back to the Co-op Power Hour, a regular feature on KGNU's It's the Economy and a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. I'm Nathan Schneider, a scholar-in-residence of media studies at CU Boulder. And on the fourth Thursday of every month, we talk about economic democracy and cooperative business. Today we're talking about co-ops and shared ownership models in uh, the local tech community. Uh, now we have with us Mike Redmer, who is founding partner of Fleet Creature, which is uh, a local tech company that's got a really interesting uh, model that they're developing. Uh, I'd love to hear more about it. Mike, can you start by telling us a bit about what Fleet Creature does? Yeah, so uh, Fleet Creature is a digital agency. So we, um, cre you know, design and build uh, applications, mobile applications, web applications, as well as websites. Um, so that's that's mainly what we do. We originally started out as a UX, uh, strictly UX UI consultancy, and uh, over the years uh, transitioned to, to doing that work. Great. And and now tell us a bit about what makes you different from the usual digital agency. You've got something really interesting going. Yeah. So uh, originally, I uh, w uh, 
you know, I was running the company as, as a traditional agency. Uh, you know, my title was CEO. And uh, similar to, to Corey you know, and, and Eric and a feeling that the, the bottleneck of being a business owner, um, we w- were uh, also working with a lot of contractors, uh, really embracing the remote uh, lifestyle, um, just of working wherever. Uh, and, I, you know, there, there were a few things that, um, you know, I, I was just interested in this new way of working. Um, I, I had you know, I uh, started and sold a few companies before uh, this one. And, you know, uh, being a CEO, you always feel stress and pressure. Uh, you know, the, the weight of all of the projects that are going on are just on you. And especially when you're working with contractors, um, there is a little bit of a disconnect between, um, uh, as, as Corey alluded to, kind of who's who's taking ownership. And ultimately, when you're the owner of the company, that it, it falls on your shoulders. Um, and being that I was the sole owner, um, I, I started getting interested in alternative models of, uh, you know, running, running a business. And uh, so I got, I got interested in, uh, earlier in my career, I got interested in uh, something called Holacracy, which is a uh, distributed management uh, governance structure. And um, through that, I came across a uh, one of the uh, co-founders of H1, Holacracy, was, uh, started a consultancy uh, to help companies transition into uh, what's called a for-purpose uh, enterprise. And this is a, it, it's quite a unique structure and, and uh, similar to a co-op, um, but a, a, lot of, a lot of differences and nuances that, that I think are advantageous for both the the organization who wants to take this on as well as the partners and contributors who want to participate. So I got interested in that and uh, we recently transitioned to an FPE um, this this last year. Great. So. And so let, let's break some of that down a little bit because there's mm-hmm. a lot of interesting stuff in what you're talking about. Um, one, let, you know, let's talk a bit about holacracy. Uh-huh. Right? This is this is a, a structure for, you know, governing an organization that has been gaining increasing traction in, in recent years. It, some large companies have started playing with it, like Zappos and Medium, um, to kind of mixed success. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's something that a lot of organizations are adopting in different ways, uh, uh, kind of reshuffling the, the corporate pyramid. Tell us a bit about what Holacracy looks like on the ground, how it's different from the kind of usual organizational uh, uh, diagram. Yeah, so th- there's there's a lot of nuances. Um, some of them are, or some of the most interesting are the the way in which they they make a clear distinction between what they call soul and role. Um, and so with traditional organizations that are maybe more top down, um, so I'll kind of contrast how we were set up. Um, you know, in in my role as CEO, it's kind of you know I'm I'm making the the calls and. Uh, issuing those things down in kind of a uh, predicting control uh, kind of command fashion and I think th- that's a lot of how uh, you know most traditional companies are, are organized that way with you know sea t- uh, level at the top the middle management layer and then the the labor at, at the bottom and it kind of just flows down so th- there's a few 
there's obviously a few issues with that. Um, one of which being uh, as you know, as uh, technology is changing and marketplaces are changing, and the the ability for an organization to respond to changes in, in the market. Uh, operating in this type of a structure really slows things down in terms of the way that they can respond uh, because you don't have the feedback loops that are uh, kind of feeding information. And uh, one of the things that Holacracy does is they look at every, every individual in, in the organization as sensors for the organization, uh, being able to, to sense and process any tensions that they might feel uh, within the roles that they're holding. And that's, that's really valuable from the standpoint of uh, giving individuals independence and autonomy in terms of the, the work that they're doing, the roles that they're, they're taking on. Um, and it also gives them the ability to modify uh, their their own accountabilities for their roles to, to spin up new roles to remove roles that are unnecessary and th the process by which that happens is um, uh, through through what's called governance meetings so there's two main forms of meetings one is governance which uh, has to do with uh, the uh, kind of structure of, of the organization policies uh, roles and accountabilities, and then another uh, meeting structure called tactical meetings that uh, really have to do with the day-to-day -day activities. Uh, but these meetings kind of hold uh, the, the, the process by which decisions happen, and the organization, um, the, through this process, the organization actually changes and uh, changes dynamically in response to uh, any tensions that are being felt anywhere in the organization. So it can, it can be a powerful tool uh, for an organization to use. Um, you know, it, it's got its, it's, got its uh, downsides and, and drawbacks as well, but a lot of the advantages that it has, uh, you know, s surpass, I think, more traditional forms of decision-making from more of a top-down uh, structure. And when you look at the organizational chart in a holacracy or similar oh. type system, uh, rather than a kind of pyramid with lines, you tend to see circles, you know, a nested yes. circles. Yep. Uh, and so, and those circles are kind of dynamic and moving uh, based on the evolution of the organization. Um, yeah. But one thing that, that tends to be missing from these uh, 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 these kinds of models is the question of ownership. You know, they, they distribute authority. They allow uh, uh, employees and, and other contributors to have much more autonomy in their own role or domain. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but often that doesn't extend uh, uh, or even or really map directly onto uh, the real ownership of the company and therefore the capacity to actually help define the purpose of the company. So, so tell us about how this this for purpose model uh, changes that. Yeah, so um, th that was one of the um, kind of the, the, the shortcomings that um, the the the, uh, the co-founder of, of Holacracy was seeing, and, and he eventually, uh, you know, he's still a part of uh, uh, Holacracy, but he started up this company called Encode. Um, that's that's how I. Uh, heard about them and uh, what he set out to do was to address that problem that, that you brought up around a lot of a lot of the companies who are owned by stakeholders um, or uh, you know they're public or uh, private owners 
uh, having this distributed uh, governance structure or management structure is great in a lot of ways, but it, it kind of only goes so far um, to where the actual uh, equity of, of the company is not distributed and managed in, in the same way. They kind of uh, make a distinction between those two aspects of the company. So um, with this for-purpose model, uh, it actually goes down to the metal in a, in a sense if, if uh, you know in terms of the actual legal structure uh, gets interwoven with this decision-making process um, and it, it's it's got some uh, unique features to it around um, various forms of value that can be exchanged and, and held uh, within the organization uh, between partners and so you have you have this um, relationship between partners and the company and that's a, a constant negotiation about what what needs might be so you might have the company might have cash needs one month and it might have a surplus the next month um, an, a part an individual partner contributor might have cash needs one month and not so much cash needs the next month and they may choose to invest in the company um, what they would be compensated so it's got a unique compensation structure um, that I think I, I really haven't seen it anywhere else in terms of the various um, we call them units um, which are representative of different uh, uh, classes of uh, compensation or, or equity. And, and so tell us a bit about how this plays out day to day. Mm -hmm. I mean, how does this change the uh, way in which uh, people who are contributing to, to uh, you know, producing value for your customers uh, are, are, are operating? Yeah. So, from um, what would you like to hear about from compensation perspective, or uh, how does how does it change how they show up uh, uh, to work? Oh yeah. Well, it it's definitely a a, a more complex relationship than a, a strictly a contractor relationship um, or a freelancer relationship, and I think that. Um, the thing that we found is it, it, there seems to be a, a progression, at least kind of retrospectively looking back on um, the ways in which I've, you know, as a business owner, I've worked with, with individuals and also been an employee and that sort of thing. And, and it seems like um, in this space in particular, uh, contractors, there's more and more freelancers and contractors that are leaving more traditional top-down uh, agencies. So people, you know, designers, developers, uh, engineers that are working for traditional agencies are kind of, they're growing a little restless of not having a voice, not being able to be in control of uh, how, how much they're making or the work that they're doing. They, they don't feel aligned with the, the companies that they're working for. And so they're, they're branching out on their own to become a, a freelancer or contractor or entrepreneur. Um, which is great, and they're, they're regaining their independence and autonomy that way. Uh, at the same time, there's some trade-offs that happen around uh, the need to wear multiple hats, uh, to be you know, the, the, the CEO of their freelance business, uh, you know, negotiate sales contracts, do the project management, uh, do the, the account uh, management, and interface with, with, with the client, and uh, and then actually do the work and manage, uh, you know, the cyclical nature 
of this type of work. Um, so it can be it can be stressful, though. It, you know, they they they're able to regain their their uh, independence. They're also kind of working more and more longer hours. You know, and for and it might be worth it for them because they they feel like they're in control, and that's that's a worthwhile trade off. Um, but a lot of the downsides, uh, in addition to those additional uh, hats they need to wear, is that they they don't have a team around them to, to support the work that they're doing, and they're oftentimes doing things that they don't really want to be doing or is kind of off-center of what their, their purpose and their passion is. Um, so uh, this kind of new way of relating uh, to an organization uh, through this four purpose model is kind of a uh, an exploration of what what this alternative way might look like where you still have the independence and autonomy uh, of a freelancer of a contractor but then you also have a way to store value inside of an organization in a way that's dynamic and that is uh, that fits your needs and uh, you know I think the the, the future that that we envision is that um, w with uh, a lot of the millennials that, that are that are coming up, they're they're really embracing kind of this nomadic uh, digital lifestyle and the ability to um, focus on the work that they really love to do. And it's really moving from uh, you know creative departments in organizations or businesses into more creative lifestyles, and so. As, as these new workers are coming up that have this, um, you know, different priorities and different things that they value, um, you know, they, they feel like they need to be aligned with the work that they're doing and they're not really willing to settle. Um, I think at, in, a in a response to that, the organizations in terms of how they're structured need to change to be able to accommodate that. Um, so I think what, what we're doing is kind of an exploration of uh, what that might look like um, for, for uh, you know, contractors to uh, kind of be be a part, have ownership in in companies, um, and and it's a it's kind of a holy grail that I've seen around the world, right? Where uh -huh. a bunch of people are trying to figure out how to do this, you know, how to create, you know, sometimes they call it uh, kind of open company or uh, open value chains or, or the, you know, these sorts of, uh, open value network is one, is one term. Uh -huh. Um, uh, and, and, uh, you know, I've seen this being developed in Europe and in, uh, uh, you know, across North America and South America. Um, but it's really hard, right? It's, it's a lot of these projects have gotten kind of stuck. Um, just because I think I, probably a range of reasons, but, but one is that a lot of us don't exactly know how to do this. Uh, uh, to do this kind of blending between being an entrepreneur, being an employee, being part of an organization, but also being a co-owner. Yeah. What have you found um, one needs to learn in order to be part of an organization like this? Yeah, I mean, that, that's been one of our biggest challenges is um, to try and, and educate and, um, you know, have this, like, pretty significant mind shift go on around um, you know individuals uh, passion and purpose and how it, um, you know in entrepreneurship it's all about your positioning and where you're best positioned as um, as uh, you know to, to apply your unique skills and passions and I think that um, 
the the mindset needs to shift and and coming from an employee mindset which i think in a lot of ways is um i mean this is my personal opinion on employment is that it really um uh, disempowers individuals um most individuals don't know how to generate value they're they don't they don't know why are why is their work valuable um, and a lot of the, you know, uh, in the educational systems, you know, that they, they teach everyone that everyone has intrinsic value just for waking up in the morning. And that's not really true. And the market won't respond to that in, in that way. You know, no, nobody's going to give you a paycheck just to wake up. So what's needed is people need to understand how they're valuable and, and how their, their work is valuable. And that just doesn't happen. You know, that, that, that requires a certain environment and a certain, you know, mentors and other peers that can help us learn. And, and you need feedback from the marketplace to tell you, um, hey, th- that's not valuable, you know, and, and, and I think being an entrepreneur, you're constantly in negotiation in that way. Um, to, to figure out, um, you know, where can I add most value? Where am I best positioned? Um, and I think that that type of entrepreneurial mindset is what's required in these new organizations. Um, and it's also, you know, it, it's f- for individuals um, to really realize that there's more, th- there's not this kind of bifurcation between work and life, you know, like your, 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 your work should be your life and your life should be your work it and and it can be that way and i think it's only kind of the, these last uh you know a few decades that we've compartmentalized things and just resigned ourselves to to go to work and do things that we don't like to do because it's what we have to do to uh, make a livelihood and th- that's the promise that these new organizational models offer is that um hey let's let's look at ways in which um, we've contorted ourselves into these old antiquated models that don't really align our, our, our individual, you know, humanity. Um, and let's, let's see how we can, uh, structure them differently in a way that's in alignment. So that, that's one of the things that I like about the four purpose model, um, and the co-op model, I think is, is, is aligning, uh, individuals, uh, passions with, you know, and purpose with the the purpose of the organization, and the more that we can align ourselves, um, I think the the more happy, more productive, um, and better for the world that we're going to be able to make things. Great. So. Well, thank you so much, Mike. And and where can people find more about Fleet Creature? Uh, FleetCreature.com. Great. And and it's n code e n c o d e dot org dot org. Right. Yep. And that's the organization that you're working with. Uh, uh, to develop this model. Correct, yep. Great, thank you. You're listening to the Co-op Power Hour, a regular feature on KGNU's It's the Economy and a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. I'm Nathan Schneider, and uh, I'll be back with you in a moment. Now that your pictures in the paper be Wow.
Welcome back to the Co-op Power Hour, a regular feature on KGNU's It's the Economy and a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. I'm Nathan Schneider. I'm a scholar in residence of media studies at CU Boulder. And we're here with you the fourth Thursday of every month talking about economic democracy and cooperative business. Today we're talking about co-ops and shared ownership models in the Colorado tech community. Um, I'm joined here by uh, Corey Cohn of Dojo4 and Mike Redmer of Fleet Creature. Now, to continue the conversation, I'd like to start by asking why, uh, why these kinds of cooperative models where participants are sharing in the ownership and governance of their, the enterprise they're involved in uh, are so important for technology. How is this different, say, from uh, a farming cooperative or uh, a food cooperative or a housing cooperative? Yeah, I would say, you know, th there's a lot of um, potential for any industry, but uh, the thing that I would call out in the technology sector and particularly around, I would say, around startups is something that Mike mentioned, which is uh, engagement. And I would say even f more than that is meaning. So one of the things that I've seen working in this sector for a while now is that there's, well, first of all, there's this incredible brain trust, right? There's uh, just very, very intelligent people with oftentimes a lot of years of training and um, a particular interest in solving problems through technology. And then they, you know, it's like they have this bent towards being technologists and then they land in this work environment, in this industry, in this economy, in which oftentimes the jobs that seem to be available to them are building things that are essentially kind of meaningless to them. So they have, you know, all these smarts, real smarty pants, wonderful brains that they're putting towards something that at the end of the day feels like they're just like a cog. They just built this small piece. And if they, you know, and that's how they can support themselves or themselves and their families. And they feel like I built, built this enterprise system or I, you know, whatever it is that there's not this kind of real sense of like, I built something that's actually meaningful, that's even necessarily being used by actual humans. A lot of times it's just constant production cycles, that kind of thing. And because of this, sort of uh, imbalance of uh, incredible intelligence and problem-solving acumen coupled with somewhat often meaningless feeling work, there's actually in our community a lot of depression and feeling of like aimlessness and um, yeah, some sense of uh, having a, actually a great gift to give, something that can potentially solve real problems and then not being able to apply that gift in any real substantive way. And, and one thing that I've noticed among some of the tech co-ops coming up is that they're very quickly starting to do more than tech. You know, right. they're finding themselves kind of by virtue of their cooperative model and their investment in, and their desire to do meaningful work and their power to actually follow through on that desire um, is that, uh, uh, you know, companies like um, Good Good Work in, in Denver and, um, uh, 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 CoLab in upstate New York um, have really started building themselves out not just as say web development companies but as kind of uh, 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 strategy uh, partners and and um, kind of facilitators 
uh, uh, using that that experience in governing themselves to help others not just build a product but think through is this really a value and is there a way that we could rethink what we're doing uh, to make it more of value and you know Mike I wonder as you uh, in, in running this organization of entrepreneurs uh, how does that change your relationship with your clients yeah, that's the interesting thing, and and something that we're we're actually exploring right now is, um, you know, we feel like we've got uh, purpose alignment with our partners, uh, with the organization, um, and now we're we're undertaking a process to to revamp how how we're working with our clients in a way that's uh, more in alignment with our clients' goals and objectives. Um, and I think that the tendency is, especially in this, you know, the services space is to, uh, there's, the, there's a commodification of services that it, that's happening, um, especially with platforms like Upwork that, that's coming out um, where uh, contractors can go onto this platform. But, you know, again, it's, it's, a, it's similar to Uber, you know, in terms of those type of platforms where uh, it can be a bit exploitative um, and it, uh, you know, clients relate to you as technicians uh, instead of partners. And so I think there's a lot of work that needs to happen around um, how, how those relationships with clients are formed that support and, and have a framework of, of supporting a more uh, partnership engagement uh, versus more of a technician, you know, you being looked at as, as an expense um, or uh, uh, just a technician to do the, the work that they're, they're saying needs to be done. Um, like you said, I mean, th these type of models really lend themselves more towards um, uh, a strategic partner for a lot of these companies. And I think a lot of the, especially a lot of our clients, um, you know, they, they might have had some success with a particular software product. Um, they have attempted to bring talent internal to, to manage and maintain that, but oftentimes it, it just doesn't work out. They're not, that's not their core uh, business in terms of where they're really adding value, even though the delivery mechanism by which they're, they're, they're delivering their, their product or their service is through technology. Um, a lot of times it makes more sense for them to outsource that to a partner um, that, that is, they're, they're, you know, our, our job is to stay up to date with the, the latest technology trends and that sort of thing. And knowing that, um, every, uh, every person that's going to be working on the project is actually an owner of, of the company, um, and, you know, has that alignment. I, th I think it's just moving in the direction that, that we need to move. And I think in the future, um, there's there's going to be a lot more uh, of these kind of networked organizations that really specialize and are instead of um, competing in the marketplace, um, it's more collaborative around uh, where different organizations purposes uh, support other organizations purposes and kind of how they can fit together and uh, individuals that that energize these organizations can have the ability to move freely um, from one organization to the next as their their personal passions and purpose shift and, and change. Um, well, no, it's it's such an interesting point. I mean, I, I came across a, a philosophical uh, journal article right the other day uh, that was turning the common question uh, on its head, the question of, of uh, when robots will catch up to humans, right? And, and this article actually said, no, we should also asked the question of 
uh, how humans are being turned into robots, right? Because uh -huh. of our, because of the way in which we're expected to interact with technology, uh, uh, there is, you know, you see this in situation, you know, kind of cartoonish situation of the Amazon uh, uh, warehouse where where every worker is being aggressively monitored by all sorts of devices, uh, tracking their productivity and requiring them to operate in very very specific ways within specific bounds. Uh, uh, we find ourselves uh, kind of. Uh, uh, transforming into the image of of these wonderful machines we've built, and and uh, you know maybe cooperative models uh, represent an opportunity uh, to reverse that and mm -hmm. to put you know human needs and creativity, uh, put the stuff that is most human about the work at the center, um, and let the technology follow from that. Yeah, I mm -hmm. think it does take away from this sort of interchangeable um, human as unit kind of model where, you know, now when I interact with, I mean, we've always been sort of, I would say, quite human-centered business, but now, especially when I'm talking to a potential new client, I have a much different sense when I say we are a member-owned organization. So would they ask us, what's, you know, what's your process? And I say, well, you're going to be direct, speaking directly with our developers and you know, this sense of like, you're going to be talking to the human that will be writing the code and you guys will be in relationship with each other, building something that's actually useful for other humans to use. And that that can always be there, whether or not, you know, uh, humans are owning, you know, there's a mass group of humans owning the company or if it's very few, you can always work in that direction. But I think that when it's, a group of people owning the company, then the client, when they are talking to those individuals, they have a sense of inherent trust, right? Because it's not just someone that could be take, you know, is sort of replaceable and interchangeable. It's not, here's one person writing code and tomorrow it could be someone else and I'll never know the difference as long as the code is written because the people that are there are actually fully engaged in the business, they're owners, and so they know it's actually those are the people that are going to be sticking around, and I can trust them to write code that is good and you know has integrity because they can't just be exchanged for someone else. And if some you know if the code isn't good, it's going to reflect poorly on the business, and then they're not going to own something that's valuable to them. So there's this sort of trust built in to the relationship that is inherently quite human, I think. Now, both of you, uh, Corey Cohen of Dojo Four and Mike Redmer of Fleet Creature have been pioneers in in this uh, community in in exploring these kinds of models you know you, and and it hasn't been easy you've had to figure out your own way do a lot of research uh, uh, you know reach out to to experts uh, uh, who can help you through your particular challenges um, what do you think we could do in the Colorado tech community to make it easier uh, for other companies to adopt these kinds of models and to and to uh, not have to be quite the kinds of pioneers that you've been in in setting up the company their companies the way you have. From my perspective, I would say um, one thing might be the, just education of uh, current CEOs um, uh, and and owners of companies. Uh, I think a lot, you know, like when I first began this exploration, I was you know I didn't know very much about it, and I had a lot of hesitation about, you know, giving up ownership or, you know, oh, this, this is my baby. I've been working on it for so long and um, I'm, I'm going to give this thing up. And it took me a long time to really unpack and understand um, 
what what I was actually gaining through through that that giving up, uh, and it's it's still been a process of kind of differentiating, and it's actually been relaxing in a lot of ways because I think as a, as an owner you kind of get married and infused to your company, and your company and you are kind of the same and. It's. I don't think it's healthy, honestly. And um, going through this process and that that uh, letting go uh, and allowing the the organization to actually be a, a self-organizing organization that is, um, you know, serving its purpose in the world, but also serving the the partner members, uh, is just a a really. Um, it, it's a really it's a big mind shift and a bit. There, there's a lot of openings there that I think uh, if. Uh, current entrepreneurs that you know really want to own things and and have control I think if they could understand um, the benefits and how that would work I think that might entice them or at least they would have more understanding about the the potential that lies there yeah and I think um, in addition to educating people who are founders CEOs and could make the transition also educating people who are starting companies um, you know Boulder Startup Week, Denver Startup Week, that kind of thing, that people can start companies. They don't even have to ever have to make the transition. They can start things in a way that can, you know, be uh, create very sustainable and profitable business. And so the one other way that I would say could have one of the greatest impacts in terms of spreading this kind of model is educating investors. So uh, we did not, although we have the the good of our uh, co-workers in mind often. We're you know, good friends with each other and have been working together for a long time. Aaron and I definitely had profit motive in mind when we made this decision to transition to a cooperative model. And you know, uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's good for the economy, it's good for our families, and uh, now many more families, hopefully. Um, and so I think if investors can understand that this is a really, really potentially quite um, more sustainably profitable model than many of the traditional models, that could help spread it, particularly in you know the startup ecosystem that we see here in Boulder. I think a lot of times people think, oh, that's sort of like the meritorious model, but I, you know, I need to make money here. And actually, they're not mutually exclusive at all. So that, that's a great point. And there's a, a growing number of funds that are kind of designed with this sort of model in mind. Uh, a great example is Purpose Ventures, which mm. is you know backed by some traditional VCs, uh, but that uh, are uh, is, is looking at a segment of the market that those VCs have been ignoring, which is the companies that aren't unicorns. You know, there's also a great uh, movement growing called uh, uh, Zebras Unite. You know, and this is a group of women uh, CEOs mainly uh, uh, who are uh, saying, we don't want to be these unicorns that have to grow to monopoly scale in order to work. We want to build sustainable, healthy companies, and we need different financing models to to do that. Uh, you know, I think there's a real opportunity for for entrepreneurs to think of themselves not just as aiming to sell their company in an IPO or an exit, but to actually think about an exit to co-op, right? An exit to some kind of fair shared ownership model where the people who really care most about the thing they've built get to end up becoming the stewards of that tool and then end up uh, sharing in the in the further growth that, that, the, that the company experiences. 
Thank you so much for joining us. This has uh, uh, been a, a great conversation, and you know, you two are our leaders in in helping to to uh, develop this side of the of the Colorado tech community. So thank you. So yeah. nice to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. You've been listening to the Co-op Power Hour on KGNU's It's the Economy, a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. You can catch us on the fourth Thursday of every month. I'm Nathan Schneider, a scholar-in-residence of media studies at CU Boulder, and I'd like to thank uh, once again our guests, uh, Corey Cohen and Mike Redmer. Uh, you can find more about them at uh, uh, dojo4.com and fleetcreature.com. We've got some uh, events coming up that I'd like to share with you. One is uh, if you want to learn more about intersections of uh, uh, cooperatives and technology in New York, I'm, I'm co-organizing the third Platform Cooperativism Conference, uh, November 10th and 11th. You can learn more at platform.coop slash 2017. We've got some really great speakers, including Alicia Garza, uh, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, uh, Yokai Benkler of Harvard, a leading uh, uh, theorist of online peer production, and uh, many more. Um, here in Colorado, we've got some great events coming up on, on November 1st, uh, is the first meeting of the Colorado Co-op Investment Club, um, on October, uh, or excuse me, November 30th, uh, Masala Co-op in Boulder, a housing co-op, is uh, hosting an event on uh, forming inclusive communities. That's part of a education series from the Boulder Housing Coalition. And then on December 1st, the uh, uh, study circle is hosting uh, uh, a meeting at, at uh, Mayu Sanctuary about spirituality and cooperative business. Mayu is a really interesting um, uh, example of a multi-stakeholder cooperative, uh, and it is uh, also uh, a meditation space. And so we'll mix some meditation and discussion about, about um, uh, cooperative business models. You can learn more about all of these, all of these and our other events at coloradocoops.info. Uh, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us tonight. Uh, thanks for tuning in, and hope to, to be with you again next month.